You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I'm your host, John Gordon. And I, when I first heard about an opportunity for this particular podcast, I got really excited about it because it, it, it's been kind of a crossover. Uh, I've never talked to somebody and interviewed somebody who also is, is a podcast host on their own. And so it's a, it's a pretty unique opportunity, and I, I'm really excited about it. So uh, let's welcome Kyle Green to the DU podcast. Hi there. How are you, man? How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing fantastic. I'm I'm I am in work mode 2.0 right now. But we just got done editing an awesome video for Ducks Unlimited, so I'm kind of on a little bit of a high right now because we did this one minute PSA. It's going to be airing next week 30 times on A and E and History Channel, teaching people about the area where I grew up duck hunting and how Ducks Unlimited is impacting and helping that area. I saw that PSA and it, it was very well done, very informative. And like I said, you're you're from the Michigan area, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right. And for for the folks who don't know who Kyle Green is, he's the host and executive producer of, of the Greenway Outdoors, uh, also the Greenway Outdoors podcast, in which is Greenway Outdoors taking a big step forward. Kyle, you're about to be on the History Channel. Yeah, it's a it's a culmination of eight years of hard work uh, with the same team that's been with me since day one, grinding and grinding and. Uh, you know, we started out on local channels and Pursuit Channel and Sportsman Channel and that sort of thing. But our goal is and will always be to try and get outside of the industry to bring new people in. As you guys know, 60% of our hunters and fishermen that are buying uh, hunting and fishing licenses and, of course, Ducks Unlimited memberships, 60% of them are 55 or older white males. And in 10 to 15 years' time, they're not going to be buying as many or any licenses anymore. And we have to figure out how to you know, build, you know, back, get people in to fill that 60% with millennials and generation Z. So we've been working for eight years to try and build content that millennials and generation Z would appreciate the most. And given the fact that it's taken this long is kind of because, you know, we're as the audience is shifting, as the growth is shifting, so is our content. So now we finally get to go to the big network. We get to go to history channel, be in front of millions of people that, you know, Maybe are interested in the outdoors. We're right next to the show Mountain Men and Swamp People, shows that people know that are kind of interested in outdoor stuff, but 
you know, maybe I've never picked up a gun before or gone hunting before or joined Ducks Unlimited before, and now we can plant the seed of conservation messaging with them. So it's uh, it's been eight years. It's been the same team with me since day one, but the fact that we're finally here, it's it just feels like such a blessing. Yeah, I can say it's just big congratulations. It is a big, and it is a big thing for the outdoor industry, outdoor lifestyle programming, you know, you've had the meat eater people cross over into, into more mainstream. It, it, now y'all are on the history channel. You know, we, you know, I, I produce ducks unlimited television and, and our DU nation series on YouTube, which is really aimed at the same demographic. We're trying, you know, trying to reach the younger audience who's not necessarily a waterfowl hunter or conservationist, really showing them that ducks unlimited is what we do is just a lot more about just that and clean water and wetlands are extremely important for all kinds of wildlife and people too. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a tough nut to crack, right? Uh, historically, outdoor content um, has just been kill shot shows, low production quality with GoPros, and you know it, it just people got a bad taste in their mouth for years and kind of stayed away from the industry. And I really like your guys's content. I really do. And waterfowling out of everything, I've traveled the world, done everything. Duck hunting is my absolute favorite, and I don't just say that. It really, I say it over and over again in podcasts, interviews, and everything like that. They're like, oh, out of everything you do, what's your favorite? You know, I, I like it more than hunting access deer in Hawaii. I like it more than moose in Maine. I like it more than everything. But um, I like the way your guys' content is produced, and I like, obviously, the Ducks Unlimited messaging. And you guys have one of the most recognized logos, Ammer, uh, which is also super beneficial to you guys. But yeah, it's reaching that younger audience. They want to see things different. They like short-form content, but they also like high production quality. If you're going to hold the attention of millennials and generation Z, your production quality needs to be extremely high and you've got to be telling a story that they can tie to. And also I, I do believe that the cooking aspect of our show is probably the most popular. It's my least favorite to film. It's my favorite to eat, my least favorite to film. Uh, but uh, I think that that cooking aspect is also very important too. But I do really like your guys' content. I think we're actually going to be working together on an episode for season two as well on our end and with you guys. Yeah, yeah, I would love to to do some work with y'all. I think it'd be fantastic. Uh, just we're trying to send out the same message, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the the conservation of the outdoors, well, it, it it's so important for everyone that you know lives you know in North America around the world. If nobody's conserving our natural resources, it's just all gonna you know it's gonna, it's gonna fall apart. And um, you know, so we both have you know the same goals. So it'd be great to work with y'all. Yeah, and I I mean. Like I said, I've grown up just loving Ducks Unlimited, going to the DU dinners, hoping to win prizes. You know, all those sorts of things are always a fun thing to do as a kid. And duck hunting is like I really cut my teeth in. I grew up hunting Harsons Island, uh, which is in Michigan here. It's one of the managed waterfowl areas. And I love the managed waterfowl areas because they kind of solve a duck hunter's biggest issue. Uh, aside from affording the gear and getting the stuff, I think a duck hunter's biggest issue is like, well, where do I go? And the managed waterfowl areas really, really, really fix that. I was just giving a seminar at Bass Pro Shop in Auburn Hills, not this past Saturday, but the Saturday before. And it was actually on waterfowl conservation because a lot of people still don't understand what that word means when you say conservation. And I like to use the snow geese as an example. Is I talk about, number one, I, I would like to say this, I believe that migration is built into birds because of God. I believe that was intelligent design. I feel like it was on purpose because if God didn't program birds to migrate, then all the people would have to be condensed into one landscape. We're talking over the last 10,000 years, they would have to be condensed into one area and then they would overhunt that area and probably wipe out the bird populations. But people being able to spread out across the country and birds migrating across the top of them at different times of year gave everybody some 
gave everybody enough, but would protect the species from ever going extinct because they could be over-harvested if they just stayed in one area all the time. So I always like to make that point um, that I think that there's no way that was on accident. But that said, you look at the snow geese. So the snow geese go the same areas every single year to uh, breed, and they go the same area every single year to, uh, you know, ride out the winters. So they migrate north and south and the numbers have gotten really big. And the problem is they're going to go to the same areas every single year, all of them, and they're all going to go there. And if we don't harvest the surplus to make room for next year's babies, what happens is there's not enough food for all of them in their wintering grounds or in their breeding grounds. And a lot of people think like, oh, then a, a few of them will die off and it won't be a big deal. But it isn't that some eat enough and then others don't. It's that none of them don't get quite enough. And if that happens, we could have an absolute population bust. So we have this giant, robust population of snow geese, and they could be gone inside of a year or two because of a population bust. So it's up to hunters to harvest as many as possible. And, you know, you get that message to someone, you know, a soccer mom that's never heard that before. And it's like, there's so many of them. Why do you got to kill them? Do you even eat them? That's mean. And you talk to them and you say, listen, if we don't hunt them even one year, or two years, they could all go away. And you know, it's not that long ago in the 60s. Now there's Canada geese everywhere in Michigan, but in the 1960s, it was like rare to see any, you know, so that could happen at any time. So I like to teach people about that as like Ducks Unlimited is so focused on making sure that the ecosystems are correct, that the um the marsh areas are covered, that 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 we own these properties, that they're maintained, that they're protected, so that the room is there. And then it's up to the hunters to make sure we're doing the harvesting and it's up to the Department of Natural Resources who we have to hold accountable. You cannot let them just go rampant because you have to hold them accountable because it takes all three of us to make sure that the duck numbers and the geese numbers continue to grow. But the snow geese is a perfect example of at any given year, we're a year or two away from them just being gone. That's a very good point. And it's right. And and the the snow goose is kind of near and dear to my heart. I've, I've, I've been hunting snows Wow, let's see. I think my first snow hunt was 1981, somewhere in that range. I'm dating myself here, uh, but uh, I was I, I I got transplanted to Houston, Texas uh, when when I was a kid, and uh, I've I've said this on this podcast before because I've I've had guys on from Houston area that where I grew up at talking about the snow goose and and how the you know, we've watched the population grow so much over the last. 20 to 30 years, it's 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 a conservation success story on its own, but you're right, without hunters keeping that population more in check, they, they could really, like you said, have a, have a major collapse at some point. Exactly, exactly. And it's something that we have to be scared of, you know, it's, it's it without, and that's why they've taken, you know, I just saw at, uh, uh, I was at Bass Pro Shop the other day and they had this this gun set up for snow goose hunting and it had the big extended uh, bottom there so you could hold like 19 shells in it at a time. And people, you know, may think this or think that about them. Like, oh, why do you need to kill so many of them? First of all, they're not bad eating. I want you to verify that with me. Do you do you do you mind them or no? I I, I love them actually. Yeah, and, I don't uh, think they taste all that different than any other goose or duck. I they, really they don't. don't. And, and I've talked about this with some of my fellow guys from back in the day in Texas. How in the world did that perception come about? Uh, the word sky carp makes me very upset. And I've heard and I've heard that used for snows for years, and it's like people are like, "Oh, you don't eat those things, do you?" And, and I don't know where it started. I don't know who started it because we always held them in very high esteem because the snow goose is, is a very worthy adversary. 
They are difficult to hunt. The adult population has gotten so old at this point. You're talking about birds that have been up and down flyways 15 years. They, they've seen it all and not easily fooled. So if you can if you can harvest those birds on their terms, it's quite an, an achievement. So we always held it that way. We always held those birds in, in really high esteem. So it, it makes us all upset that people think that they're no good as table fare. And it, it, there's you know so that aspect of the hunting side of it is is irrelevant and they and i don't know how it happened either they hold this they think the speckle belly is like the greatest thing of all time and you can pretty much cook them side by side and i really cannot tell the difference on them yeah i've actually a speckle belly is one bird i've never actually harvested i've always kind of wanted to because you you know they they play them up to be these big buttery amazing tasting birds but i mean i like snow geese that we don't have them here in michigan there's always one guy at the managed waterfall area that gets in trouble shooting a swan, thinking it's a snow geese. But uh, but I've but you you, you don't rare, you rarely see them here. You know, there's very few that uh, get harvested here. It's mostly Canada goose. But um, girl, you know, my, I've got two nieces um, that are younger. I think they're nine and eleven now, or nine and twelve. And they uh, their favorite food is Canada goose. But they and it's funny because they they like go to school and tell kids that their favorite food is goose, so they like take it in for lunch. And uh, um, they're homeschooled now after the whole COVID debacle. But the, um, before that, they, you know, they were big fans of uh, eating goose and people just thinking it's so weird that they, but, you know, they grew up having it. So they know how good it is. They went in with that honest try. But you think, uh, I always tell the to the uh, Christmas story, the Christmas goose, you know, the big, the big, beautiful goose that they had uh, that Scrooge got. I, it's, it's a, it's a fantastic meat, but I, I think snow geese get a bad rap too. I, I thought they were pretty good. Well, if you, if you want to hunt some speckabellies, man, we can make that happen. I, I, I've i got a spot in Arkansas that, uh, you know, literally thousands of specks come through there on a, on a daily basis. So uh, I, we, we can make that happen. I'm going to grab the Boss Shot Shells bus and we're all going to jump on board and come on down. I'll bring the shells. <laughs> okay. That sounds good, man. I, uh, that's right. Being in Michigan, uh, I'm sure you probably got a relationship with the, uh, with the folks over there at Boss. Oh, they're amazing people. I mean, number one, they're like a family. They haven't been around that long. Um, you know, that I think they got started in 2018, uh, but their product is superior. I got to go there and um, Brandon, the guy that uh, started the whole thing, he walked me through the process on how they make the shells. And one of the most fun, I mean, one of the best afternoons we had was taking a box of a bunch of competitor shells and we were feeding them through. And basically they've got two lasers set up in this tube. And it shows basically when the pellets cross one and they cross the second, that tells you the exact speed of how fast they're going. And the boss shells were so consistent. They were with the five they were within five feet per second each. And then we were running all the other brands and they were hundreds of feet per second off. So from that consistency standpoint, and their new wadding that they put, I'm very passionate about that. I'm a nerd when it comes to shotgun shells. So you just opened up a can of worms. <laughs> but on top of that, they have the new Warchief shells with the buffering in them. And what happens is we're doing all these tests in the field. I told you I'm a complete nerd. And we're doing this test in the field where you're shooting gel blocks. Almost none of the other shotgun shells, all the other competitor brands, the back one third of their shot string wasn't even penetrating the gel. And that's because the the gunpowder that's used in all the other brands is deforming all of the back one third of the shot strands. So the pellets are just getting the gel block and falling off. And the problem is, if you're not, you're a subpar shooter like myself, when you're, you, you always end up hitting the birds with the back of your shot string. You know what I mean? And you yeah. need those pellets to be effective. And what was interesting about bosses, with their density being basically what lead is, uh, you're able to use any choke tube you want. 
but all of the shot was going through the gel block, all of it, because the buffering is keeping from the, that back uh, strand from getting deformed. And seeing that and how they get copper to stick to bismuth, it's just, and those new warship flows, I'm passionate about it because they really, really, really are the best. And the fact that they're in Michigan here is is great, but they're like the nicest people. And I like their direct-to-consumer approach because somebody might look at their box of shells and think they're more expensive. But if you compare it to any competitors that are even using anything like what they are as far as the actual ingredients go in making the shells, they're cheaper than everybody. So I'm a, I'm a big fan, if you can't tell. <laughs> I can tell. I, I've interviewed Brandon before. I, I, I do some writing as well. And Brandon's so we, a genius. We, Brandon's a genius. He, he's a, ballast, you know, a ballistician, and he really has di- dived deeply into what makes a shot shell tick. And um, it, it's he's made a really a really strong product. To, you know, there's the proofs in the pudding. It's interesting that nobody buffering when I was a kid. So like, I grew up hunting. You know, I first started hunting ducks in late seventies. So when I was a kid, the buffering thing was a big deal, and then, and then all of a sudden it just seemed like it disappeared forever. And now it's, it's finally somebody has brought it back to the forefront that buffering is a really good way to improve your patterns. And like you said, keep that backside of the pattern uniform and in good shape and not deformed. And that is a huge part of a really a, a clean harvest on a bird. And I think that's what a shot shell should be all about. You know what I like most about Boss actually is. We use different powders than everyone else for gun powders in our shells. So what's happening is when you're using other brands in the field and you've patterned your guns and you've gone through all the process and you know the speeds and all that stuff for your gun, when you, you get them cold, those gun powders react differently because of the, way, the, the choices that they make as far as cutting costs and stuff. With Boss, you're getting the same speeds and the same consistency out of it. I'm not good enough to have variables added to my plate. Okay. I need consistency. So that, that, that is, that is, that is what I like about boss. Although I did, I went and shot some sporting clays this weekend and I shot 40 out of 50. So I did pretty good there, but it was a tough course too. A couple of like the ones that I didn't hit. I don't think I'm ever going to get there, but the, the, I felt, I felt, I, I feel good about the season coming up. Well, that's great, man. We got off on a little bit of a shot shell rabbit hole. Yeah, we there, did. But, <laughs> I'm a shotgun nut too, Kyle. So like you said, we're kindred spirits, man. Uh, we can sit here and talk about shotguns and shooting and uh, dogs and everything else all day, I'm sure. So anyway, I want to kind of go back in time a minute because according to your website, you know, you really began your career as a, as a fitness consultant for a medical show. So how did you go from there to here? Yeah, so it was pretty interesting. I, um, I actually, when I grew up, I... I got my first job was um, being a porter and then I sold cars and I kind of saved up all my money uh, over a four or five year period. And I made quite a bit in that time uh, learning. I, I ended up becoming like the internet manager and that sort of thing at a dealership. But I uh, I decided I still wanted to go to school and get an education in uh, physical training. Uh, to be honest with you, though, it's not like a four year program. It's one of those, you know, one year programs. So I would never want to brag about that actual, you know, certification. But I went there just simply because I wanted to know more about fitness and health and training, and I was obsessed with going to the gym, and I just wanted to get better. So I did that. Right after I graduated, I heard about this new medical talk show, and it was local in Michigan at the time. And I was, and uh, my girlfriend's mom at the time was like, "You should go try out for that. They're looking for a personal trainer for it." So I did, and I went in there, and I saw the lights and the cameras and the television, and I was like, "I want to do this." So I ended up, uh, I, I asked them for a job, and they said we didn't have any paying positions, so I worked for free. Um, and then I, I was there for uh, about s- within six months, I think I was nominated for three Emmys and was vice president of the company uh, from working for free running coffee to that in a six month period. 
Um, so I worked my way up. I just relentlessly worked um, and helped build up that show to what it is today. It's called Ask Dr. Nandy. Um, you can still see it um, on a bunch of different platforms. I'm not sure of the channels now, but I left there wanting to really follow my original passion, which was hunting and fishing. And I, I identified that problem that 60% of hunting and fishing licenses sold to white males of the age of 55. I knew if we didn't correct that, then my future kids and grandkids and stuff probably wouldn't be able to hunt. So I was like, I'm going to take what I know about the television industry. I'm going to build my own show. I got all my best friends together. We dumped all of our money into it and went for it. And then I lost all our money and lost big time, got beat up bad, had a terrible you know, first four years just getting our butts kicked, wasting all our money, went from having a lot of money to no money fast, um, basically lost everything and just kept trucking away, trucking away, trucking away. And the team, like I said, I, I, this will probably be the fourth time on this call I've said it, but same team with me since day one, and we just gritted through it. And we just woke up every day. How can we improve? How can we get better? How can we be the best? And how can we make sure our production quality is so good that the big networks can't, can't ignore us? And up until recently, I, I you know, we hadn't really reached that goal. Uh, but now we have, and we have great partners like Boss and others that have helped take us to that level. Man, great story uh, and a great point. Man, you can just go through so many success stories throughout time, and it's like, man, we just the, the the underlying theme is we went through some bad times, and we never gave up, and that's that's kind of the story of, of Ducks Unlimited too. In a lot of ways, you know, you start out as a fledgling organization in the 1930s, um, and just persevered. you know, 87 years later, still going strong, and so it's uh, it, you know, it it it's a very very important thing for people to learn that. You just if you've got a dream, you pursue it and keep after it, and uh, don't let don't let the ups and downs get you because they will. You know, we were talking about it uh, this morning too. We just had our big premiere party in Auburn Hills at Bass Pro Shop, um, and we had hundreds of people come out. It was a beautiful event, and it was really exciting. We had Wild Game, and uh, the AMC theaters here in Michigan were showing the Greenway Outdoors on the big screen for the History Channel release, and uh, we were all talking about it though. And you know, it's you can't. I couldn't have seen in year four, how in year eight, I would get to History Channel. But I always knew I could take one more step. Um, and I always knew I could keep, you know, just take that one more step and keep the team involved and believing that it would happen. And I used the analogy in a video that we made for that night was um, the four-leaf clovers. So my dad was like really, really good at finding four-leaf clovers when I was a kid. Uh, we would go up to Kalkaska, Michigan every year uh, for family vacation. And he'd always be like in the yard looking for four leaf clovers and he'd find them. And he always told me that you had to look for right angles because the four leaf clovers make a square. So if you look for right angles, you'll end up finding them. So I got pretty good at it. And the, the, the moral of the story was like, you would never find the four leaf clover until you were very sure you could find one, that one was there. So you had to believe it was there before it actually was. And then you had to look for the right angles. And that's kind of been, we had to believe that we would get here. Even though we couldn't see the path to get there, you just keep taking one more step. And that's that's for anybody in life. Yeah, that's a very good point. And a good place to take a break, folks. So uh, we're going to take a little break in the DU podcast and stay tuned. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient. 
and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. My guest today is Kyle Green. He's host and executive producer of the Greenway Outdoors television show. And you also do a podcast as well. Kyle, tell folks a little bit about your podcasting. Yes, yeah, so the uh, the podcast is hosted by the core four of the group. You've got our director, our producer, and then myself, and then my other host of the television show, Jeffrey, who's been my best friend since we were five years old. And basically, we talk about all the current events, everything going on, hunting, fishing related sometimes. And then really, it's kind of the behind the scenes of the adventures that we go on. We produce about 15 episodes of our television show a year, 52 video podcasts, 24 how-to videos, and six online series episodes as well, which is kind of that short form format similar to what you guys do on YouTube. So it's kind of the behind the scenes and what goes into all that, as well as the guests that are on all those shows. We bring them on the podcast to learn more about them and their backstory and that sort of thing too. And had some fun guests on, Granger Smith, Ted Nugent, some crazy ones too. So um, it's a good time. It's a good time. Yeah, I've done the same thing with, with the DU Nation series and this podcast. I've done a lot of the podcasts with folks who have been on it uh, just because there's some interesting characters. It's amazing in the outdoors, the people that you run across and their different backgrounds and different stories and how, how interesting a lot of those folks are. And it's just, I think the podcast in, in conjunction with a television show is, is, is a great tool. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's um, you can only accomplish so much in a half hour show. And like a lot of times we find one of the episodes we did, actually, it's the premiere episode that'll air Saturday, September 2nd on History and then History Streaming afterwards. Uh, it's a bison episode. And there were so many angles to this episode, there was no way we could accomplish it all just in the actual show itself. And one of the big pieces of it is that the buffalo or bison didn't get down to 45, you know, 45 bison were left in the United States of America. That wasn't because of white guys killing them and Native Americans killing them. It was because of disease. And the idea, my goal was that people needed to know that because the narrative has been dances with wolves forever, right? Um, And not to say that that didn't happen and it was terrible and tragic and that there wasn't bounties put on bison and that we, our goal wasn't, you know, the, the white man's goal wasn't to get rid of the bison in order to hurt the Native Americans and put them on welfare. All that happened. But the main, what killed the most animals was disease. Um, There's a disease called uh, malignant catarrhal fever, which is from sheep. And a sheep will have a fever for like a day or two, and then it'll be fine. But if a bison gets it, he'll die so fast that he can't even spread it to other bison, normally within 24 hours. So they're very they're very prone to getting disease. Now, we cover that a little bit in the show, but how are you going to do that in a half hour and do the hunt and everything else too? So that's kind of what the podcast is for, is to dive deeper into those stories and teach people what's really going on. And you have to be able to identify the problem with uh, uh, opinion-free uh, in order to solve it. Excellent point. Excellent point. And it is it is bison folks out there. It's not buffalo. Yeah. People yeah. people get that wrong all the time. It's funny. I think I think the buffalo species are mainly in Africa and Asia, and uh, it's, it's the American bison, a fascinating animal and such a big part of U.S. history. You know, without, sure is. without those animals, you know, a, a lot of pioneer families could not have survived. Could not have really moved, expanded westward. Uh, you know, without without those as a food source. It's interesting. My grandfather had a really, he was kind of a visionary guy. 
Uh, he had an idea that he was going to uh, produce beefaloes. He was a rancher in Mississippi and brought in, I think it was, he got them from Montana. I think they're 50 or 60 head. And my mother tells me the stories about that. Uh, there, there's cattle and then there's bison and how aggressive that those things are and the fact that you did not want to tangle with them because they were coming at you and uh, so don't don't get them confused but um, what what happened with that was uh, just it once again climate disease and everything it was just too hot down here you know in the south for those bison to really survive and thrive and they just the old thing you know I think all of them ended up <coughs> expiring before it was all over with but that's 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 another story but there's all kinds of stories like that out there uh, of, of folks in, in the outdoors. Uh, speaking of my grandfather, we'll, we'll go back to shotguns for a little bit. And this was a this was an, this was a podcast. I looked at it, and the title of it caught my attention because my grandfather was a, a big time quail hunter. You know, back when the Bob White quail here in the South and the state of Mississippi, especially, they were prolific. And of course, you know, over the years, farming practices, different things have happened, and the South has, has lost most of their quail. But uh, my grandfather was was a wing shooter. He never was a big game hunter at all. But uh, his favorite gauge was the twenty eight. And uh, you had a podcast <laughs> called the twenty eight gauger. And I was like, I was pretty intrigued by that. I said, okay, I got, I got to listen Uh-oh. to what they have to say about the twenty eight uh, gauge no. because uh, and and but my grandfather wasn't one of those guys, right? He wasn't, you know, trying to say, oh man, he just he just really like you know like quick shotguns for bob whites, and so he just kind of fell in love with that, that gun. <laughs> But uh, so, uh, you know, and I get what you were saying about it, but um, I, I don't, man, I'm such a fan of, of all the way through all the, I, you know, I've got 10s, 12, 16, <laughs> 20s, 28, but uh, tell, tell us a little about the 28 gauger. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm as red as can be right now. I'm blushing. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So the, the premise was this, in the hunting and fishing industry, I say that there's two types of people and- there's one type of person in the outdoor industry, which I'd like to think is a lot of them, uh, and I'd like to think they're the bigger portion. It's the nice people that will do anything for you. They're the people that will invite you out to shoot speckle bellies in Arkansas. They're the people that will go out of their way to, to lend someone a hand or give advice and, and help them in any sort of way. And then there's the other type, which you often run into when you go into an archery shop or you go into a gun shop and you don't know everything, so you're an idiot. And they treat you stupid and they... They talk down to you and they belittle you and they're secretive and they don't want people in the industry and they want to keep people out of the industry and they want to hog it and that sort of thing. That There's that other group. And something we've noticed with a lot of them is, and we were in, we were in Maine hunting moose and this guy was like, you don't need anything bigger than a 243 to hunt moose. And I'm like, that's a irresponsible caliber choice. It's just like a stupid <laughs> yes, thing is. to say. It's a dumb thing to say. And the problem is, and, uh, um, and we were explaining it to the guy Chuck that we were with. We're like, yeah, there's like, you ever notice like that group of people that always talk down to everyone, they have like this ego based around using the most minimal amount of equipment possible to the point where it's irresponsible and stupid. And I said, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's like the person that's like, oh, you're hunting pheasant. If you're using anything more than a 28 gauge, you're just ruining them. And so, and like people kept bringing up, tw- you don't need anything more than a 28 gauge. You don't need anything more than a 28 gauge. And like with boss shot shells, you can get away with it. But I was like, I use a 12. I have a 16 and I have a 20 and I have a 12. Those are the three that I use. But we noticed that it was like the type of person that was always using the minimal thing always had to bring up using a 28 gauge. So we just started calling those people that are so obsessed with using minimal equipment because they're so much better than you'll ever be. And you're so stupid for using a 12 gauge and you're an awful person. 
Those people that say stuff like that, we call them 28 gaugers. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, and, uh, I, most and, duck hunters don't, which is good. So I think we'll be okay on this podcast. But <laughs> and that's a good point. Just from a conservation angle, I think that, you know, really knowing and learning how to shoot, the equipment you use, dogs are a huge part. They're a, a big part of conservation as well, conserving game. Um, it's, it's really a good point. And yeah, the the minimalist guys. I they, they, there are definitely a segment yeah. of, the, of the of the outdoor population that's like that. I mean, I just I haven't really run across many of them lately. But I think I think where you are up in the in the in that part of the world, I think you may have a few more because you, you've got more upland game hunting going on. We almost lost it down here, Kyle. We just don't we don't have pheasants. The bobwhites are gone. There's no grouse. I mean, I guess maybe East Tennessee may have a few something like that left but it's, it's 12 gauge world down here you know because it's mainly all duck and, and goose hunting uh in the deep south these days turkeys as well and mm-hmm. uh so that it's really uh uh we don't run across that kind of sportsman very often but hey you know <laughs> come on there. up we got them we got them <laughs> in boatloads walking you know and I, I i just i despise it because i remember being that little kid that walked in the store you know at 16 years old and i was trying to figure stuff out and people talking down to you and being rude or arrogant and then you meet the one nice guy that goes out of his way to help you and you never forget it and i just always wanted to make sure i was that guy yeah yeah great point man i can remember it's, it's almost just kind of a shift away to this the sub gauges i guess the 28 24 10 have become have become a big deal lately but i can remember when i was a kid boy it was man all, all kids wanted to, to make that step up to a 12 gauge that was the yeah. big deal right <laughs> i mean it was like man can't wait to get a 12 gauge it was kind of like a rite of passage. I think COVID too uh, really upped the interest in sub gauges because the 12 gauge and 20 gauge was all sold out. And the only thing left right. on the shelves was your 16s and your 28s and your 410s. And then people were like, well, okay, I'll get one or, you know, that sort of thing. And we, uh, we, we, we work with Savage for our guns. And uh, I, I just, what I like about Savage is they have a gun in the price range for everybody. So you can buy your really expensive ones, you can buy your less expensive ones, but the quality is always good. And a lot of the companies use Savage Barrels in general anyway, so their, their barrels are really, really high quality and I'm a big fan. But they 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 just came out with a, uh, their 555, which is their over and under, They've got a uh, they've got a 16 gauge and that's gonna be the my go-to upland gun this year. Uh, is that 16 gauge and boss make shells for it. So it kind of worked out perfect, but I'm, I think that's the perfect in the middle. It's not, you know, it's not overkill like the 12 for Upland, but it's not underkill with the 20. Cause sometimes, you know, in Michigan for the first, you know, a uh, month or so of the season, everything's so green and thick that you want that, you know, you want that uh, a little bit more huspa than a 20 gauge a lot of times. Yeah, I'm a big 16 gauge fan. You brought it up once again, Kendrick Spirits, ma'am. <laughs> I have I have a Stevens 555E 16 gauge over yeah. under. Yeah, you know and, the gun. Uh, and I was shooting Boss ammo through it. As a matter of fact, boss, hey, hey. boss, boss number sevens, man. Now we're, was, you know that number seven for teal. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty devastating. And for those of you who don't know, when you hear number sevens, a lot of people are like, number sevens. What's this wild man doing? You have to understand, it's not steel shot. So because the density is so much greater. The sevens would be more like fives or fours, uh, as far as like knockdown power goes. So you got to keep that in mind too. And I, I there, there's there's a community going on right now that people are convinced you can shoot everything with Boss Number Sevens, and that's the only box of ammo you need. <laughs> <laughs> what do you need? A seven. 
Okay. That, yeah, that's right. Good, good t-shirt right there. But uh, tell uh, Kyle, so the show's coming out on the History Channel. Uh, give us a little preview uh, of some of the episodes you got coming out this year. Yeah, so I told you a little bit about the bison one. Um, every episode's about a specific tactic for a specific species being hunting or fishing, and it works out to be about 50-50 between hunting and fishing. But the goal is to basically educate people on a conservation message that's happening with each one. So we did a turkey episode with the National Wild Turkey Federation. And uh, we kind of we did a controlled burn, so they trusted me with matches, which is crazy. But uh, we did a we did a small forest fire uh, in order to talk about um, creating new habitat and that sort of thing. And then we did turkey hunts in South Carolina, which is where the, a lot of the source birds went when they planted them all over the rest of the United States when the turkey was almost extinct everywhere else. So those birds are real smart. Just a heads up, I I wouldn't go there, but <laughs> go go to the go to the descendants of the dumb ones that got trapped and moved. That's the ones that you want to go after. Uh, but we did that. We went to Maine, and in Maine, this was super interesting. We did a moose episode, and we went to this area, sixteen hundred square miles, which is like more than you can imagine, of of land owned by a paper company that's managed by their Department of Natural Resources there. And basically what's happening is 80% of all moose calves are dying of blood loss from ticks. So think about how much blood loss would have to come out of a moose in order for ticks to kill them. So you're talking tens of thousands of ticks getting on each animal and killing them. 80% are dying right now. And the problem is they've tried everything. So they actually have to go in and it's species specific, the ticks. So they have to go in and kind of wipe out all the moose let it settle down for two or three years, let the ticks die off, and then reintroduce moose. So we're there for that. And um, it's very strange because um, they want you to shoot calves and cows mainly, and then you could shoot a bull if you see it. It's very strange to be in that environment because uh, we ended up getting a cow in the episode, I can say that. A big one, actually, the biggest one shot, you know, we were uh, like a few weeks or months into the season, we actually shot the biggest cow that year so far in the state. Um, and I don't know if it ended up being number one still or not, but it was a very big cow, but um, she had a calf with her and it was just very hard emotionally to figure, like everything in me was saying, don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot, but you have to. And if you let them go, you're prolonging the problem with the ticks and you're killing off other moose by not killing them. But uh, it was it was just strange. And then once we got the cow, we told other people and then they were going after, they're like, where was the calf? Where was the calf? I was like, geez, we put that poor thing in the Hunger Games. But the uh, um, but the, the the numbers are just, I'm sorry, it's a little dark, but it's true. But the whole goal is like they have to wipe them all out and then reintroduce moose after the ticks die. And if we don't solve this problem quick, those ticks right now it's species specific, but they might get creative if we give them time to continue to evolve and figure things out and start getting on deer and that sort of thing too. So we have to do it quickly, and you're saving future populations by doing it. So that was really strange, but. So we really try and get into deep conservation messaging. We went to the Everglades and we hunted pythons. There's a quarter million pythons right now in the Everglades. They're completely destroying everything. 99% of every animal with fur is gone. And for a while, two species per week were going extinct. And the only reason why it's gone down to one or zero per week right now is because we're running out. The Everglades are dead. The Everglades are gone. There's nothing with fur anymore and nobody knows it. Nobody's talking about it. It's like you see on the news, like, oh, the python people are going out and getting pythons. How cool and fun. We have to stop this invasive. No, they've decimated everything, and the, they need to change the laws there so more people can access the Everglades National Park and wipe them out because everything's gone. They need to go in and blast those things. But we weren't even allowed to use guns because we're in the Everglades National Park. We had to catch them by, by hand. 
Do you want to go catch a python, a 15-foot python that can kill you by hand? Meanwhile, there's only like eight people that have access to the Everglades National Park. So we're also sounding the alarm on stupid things like that to try and get more people involved to try and change the narrative um, and, and and use common sense when it comes to conservation. So that that's another. So we're hunting moose. We're hunting. We're hunting pythons. We're 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 fishing for. Um, we went up to remote Idaho and we ice fish remote lakes. And the conservation story there is the cutthroat trout, the Yellowstone cutthroat. Um, they're taking them out of the rivers and stocking them in these remote fishless lakes to get san- to get the DNA spread out. So that if the river gets knocked out, the species isn't gone. We're talking near the South Fork and that sort of thing. A lot of people know the Snake River. So we went to all these remote lakes where they did all these stockings. And we traveled there uh, by snowmobile 40, 40 miles into the mountains in order to get there and see if there was if the, if the fish stocking had worked so that they can advertise it to locals who are trying to get away from the tourists on the river This is for uh, this upcoming spring season. So that was really fun and just... Everything's a conservation message, high energy, high octane, high adventure, crazy, cool environments, just getting out there and getting after it. Man, sounds like a show I'm going to have to watch for sure. I <laughs> hope. Like I said, I'll be as being a storyteller, too, I, I love the fact that y'all are really diving deep into issues that are problems. Man, the, the tick. Hmm. And once again, it may be ticks and roaches left after the nuclear war, right? Uh, <laughs> those things are the most resilient. Th- and and, I, and, and you, were t- you brought up control burning. Uh, that's a that's a huge aspect of conservation that people have really forgotten about the fact that Mother Nature used to control a lot of that. There were you know wildfires would clean out underbrush, clean out all and in, in, in really improve the health of forests and really control the in a lot of sp- things like ticks and other insects. And man, now you've you're controlling the fire in most places, and so it's not allowed to happen. So you've seen like species like ticks really explode. What baffled me was um, what we learned from the scientists was. They couldn't believe going into the research, they wouldn't have anticipated this, how many fires are caused by lightning strikes. But now when a fire happens, like you said it, we put it out. You know, a fire happens, we put it out right away. So all these burns that would have happened aren't happening. And that was kind of, I question everything. I, tr- I trust nothing. I have to get to the bottom of it. And when we were looking at the um, the turkey and we're talking about the controlled burns, I'm like, there was turkeys here long before we were doing controlled burns. So what what's, what's the deal? And then- Working with the NWTF, we discovered, we're like, oh, okay. So there was all these lightning strikes causing all these fires. Now that doesn't exist because we put them out when it starts. And on top of that, we have all these cities built up. So even when the fires happen, they can't jump and go as far as they normally would have. So everything is just so minor. Um, And then you have to go in, you have to clear this out. Otherwise, you're not going to have the turkey populations you want. So it's just, it's very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. Fire is is a is a really great conservation tool, and it's used well uh, <clears throat> throughout the South. You know, control burns really help. I mean, quail populations, turkey, you know, whitetails, all of it. It it just like I said, that was Mother Nature's cleansing product, so to speak, uh, with uh, with with lightning and fire. That uh, <clears throat> it really helped it out. It made me think too. Is like uh, we talked about man inventing fire, right? And it was like, well, did they know it existed before they figure out how to make it? Well, based on the research we did with all the lightning strikes, they must have. They must have seen fire, um, but they probably weren't. Whenever they did, it was probably like, oh, no, not like let's, you know, put a piece of meat on a stick and try it out. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're probably like, oh, crap, every time it happens. So it's just interesting how they learn to control it. Yeah, I'm a big history buff, man. It, 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 the evolution of, of a lot of things is pretty fascinating to me about how, you know, we harnessed fire, domesticated dogs. I'm a big dog guy. The fact that, 
you turned a wolf into your <laughs> a golden retriever. Companion. Yeah, that's it. It's like, man, how did that happen? You know, right. and it, it it's 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 pretty fascinating. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, you look at a Yorkie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? Like, how the how the heck? <laughs> <laughs> a dog breeding is pretty fascinating to me too. And you, it was interesting. You said golden retriever. That's what I have. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I feel bad. Golden retrievers are a passion of mine. Uh, they just uh, they're such wonderful dogs. It's a field. And, it's a field golden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So talk talk about the difference. I know the difference, but that is. Because I'm really looking at that right now as field goldens, so I want to I want to I want to hear your thoughts on it. Okay, so Labrador, you know, started in England, and it was really uh, the English aristocracy that developed the uh, Labrador Retriever and to a lot of the dog that you see today. But uh, there's you know uh, in Scotland is where the where the golden started, and the golden retriever started out as as you know a mix of different breeds that uh, they brought together uh, to create. Um, uh, the field golden retriever, which is um, a much smaller, uh, shorter-coated, redder dog than you would see in the pet market, right? So those dogs developed from there, and there's still, you know, a contingency of people you know, around the world who are, are breeding and continuing the golden, the field golden tradition, although I think there's, I mean, man, in the, in the golden retriever population, you'd have to say that at least 80% are probably more show pet oriented dogs for sure and uh so they've lost a lot of, they've lost their instincts and i love just going retrievers in general there's some of the sweetest dogs in the <laughs> world but um uh my dog buster he's in my office right now as, as we speak because I, he's with me everywhere and uh, it's great to work at ducks unlimited man it's it's a very dog friendly environment so yeah. i get to bring him every single day he's got he's got a bit of a fan club you know that uh <laughs> they want to come by and visit but uh he's a compact dog he's like 50 pounds he's out of a couple of really strong lines uh, my good buddy Mark Atwater, who's a, who's a really great dog photographer. I'm sure you've probably seen some of his work. If you don't know who he is, if you've seen some great dog pictures, a lot of them in DU Magazine, as a matter of fact, uh, he's he's done a lot of great photography work for us. He got off in the field, Golans, and the dog that's uh, – my dog Sire is one of was one of Mark's dogs, and then uh, his grandsire is one of Mark's dogs, and he's he's really developed a strong line of them. So you, it's a con. The, the field going retriever is such a blend of incredible hunting instincts, an incredible off switch, and incredible intelligence. That's what it's like. The it's like the three best things you could have in a dog. That's what I tell people. I you know I think you're tired of me talking about it. I'm sure, but it, you know, I'm not. I'm not. Hitting you know, in, in the waterfowl world, the Labrador's king. And, yeah, and it always will be. And I like Chesapeake Bay Retrievers too, as well. They're pretty cool dogs. But uh, you know, I'm really, you know, the Field Golden is a different dog, and I just think it's just an excellent hunting companion. How is the shedding? Not bad at all. You you would you would think that a long haired dog like that, and they're not that long comparatively. You know, it's a, it's a really more coarse, compact coat than than the the pet style Golden. So I would say it's. It's you know the worst shedding dog I've ever had in my life was a German short hair. Yeah, <laughs> she shed like wildfire. Yeah, and the shortest coat of any dog I've ever had. So there's no correlation, I don't think, a lot of times to to the to coat length and shedding. So uh, I would say I, I've I've seen labs shed a lot worse than those golden retrievers. I grew up. I had a lab and Springer Spaniel mix uh, when I was a kid, and he shed quite a bit too. Uh, but I feel a field golden has had my eye for a long time now. It's just we travel so much. Uh, I'm not married or anything, but if I if I was or when I am, I, I that's kind of my thought process is a field golden. Well, like I said, when you're ready, man. Yeah, let me I know, know what to talk to. You I, 
I'm I'm in tune. We'll talk it over world. at Speckle Belly Camp. That's it. Come to Speckle Belly Camp. We'll get we'll get we'll get Mark over there as well, and he can bring. And I have my dog, and he can bring a couple of his dogs. I think he's got. Wow, what's he got? Five, five or six at the moment. That When's he's got. the season down there? Uh, the spec season will open late October, and okay. then uh, it'll it'll run concurrent with ducks, pretty much the whole way. So we definitely can work that out, man. You know, December, January, you're going to be in and out. I'm going to be in and out, but I'm sure we can come up with uh, with some dates that'll work. I'm in. I'm in. I would love that. <laughs> All right. All right. You know, and uh, yeah, we'll do some yeah, cooking okay. too. We'll do it. Do some I- cooking too, man. You know? I don't think I mentioned that, but in our show, we've got a beautiful st- studio kitchen here in Auburn Hills. And every episode, we co- cover that conservation messaging, but we cook everything we get every episode. And we try to do like a five-star cool recipe that you get at like a restaurant, not something that's just throw it on the grill. And, you know, we're not making poppers for Dove. You know what I mean? We're trying to mix it up a little bit. Man, that's that's a great point. There's so much more to do with with wild game than than just people people know like that, right? Wrapping um, bacon, <laughs> yeah, wrapping and bacon, throw it on a grill. Well, okay, that's good, but there's a lot of other ways to do it. There's a guy that uh, man, you really would love to meet, need to meet. It's uh, the the chef down at uh, Spread Oaks Ranch in Texas. We've I've done quite a bit of, of filming down there with him. His name is Rick Rosser, and Rick is a huge farm to table guy i mean he really doesn't want to prepare anything that doesn't come off of that ranch so he's you know from man his, his charcuterie boards are the most incredible thing i've ever seen he'll have meats on there that have been aging for over a year you oh know? wow I mean, he, he's serious about it rick is uh is a great guy we'll have rick on du nation again coming up soon um, um let's see we're filming september 11th with him and another chef down there for teal um in texas it's uh but yeah we need to get you down to spread oaks man you you, you, know, you and rick get in the kitchen man and just go nuts i would love that <laughs> i would absolutely love that we leave uh september 11th we're doing a bear hunt in maine um and we're going to be working with amish people there and we're working out all the details on how we're going to film them from the back, but never show their face, but have them, te- they're going to teach us how to make soap from bear fat. So I'm pretty excited about that too. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, I think we've got, it's in Pennsylvania, and I've thought about doing a film on this, but once again, they're not really friendly on filming, but we have an Amish di- Ducks Unlimited <laughs> chapter. <laughs> oh, really? Up there. Yes, we do. And, oh, uh, man. And, 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 they, and they're big time fundraisers. They they really are. So it's just like I've been trying to explore that angle. How would I really get those folks to really uh, be agreed to be on film? And I'm not sure that would happen. But uh, it was it, it was it's been an idea of mine. It's been a weird conversation, to be honest with you. And I can't talk to him on the phone. So right. so uh, the guy Chuck that we know that lives there, he communicated with him, and basically they were like, um, "You can't talk to somebody else's wife. So a man can't go talk to another man's wife. So I can't do that." But there's a couple women that aren't married, whether they're widows or whatever it is, and I could talk to them, but I can't show their faces on camera. So I think what we're going to do is film over the back while they're explaining to me how to do it so you know they're there. And I think it gains an interesting angle, too. And and we're also going to cover why they don't want to be on camera, because it's not that they're just camera shy. It's that they don't want that. They don't want that credit or say to my understanding, it's they don't want um it's like a way of uh, bragging or or uh, a form of attention or I, I, I the words escape me, but something like that, that that's why they don't want that uh, a picture of themselves. Um, but yeah, it's it's I'm not saying it correct. So don't quote me on it, but it's something like that. <laughs> um, gotcha. But yeah, so we're going to do that. And then uh, and I guess Chuck was like, just so you know, like the guys there are going to razz you big time. I was like, why? He's like, because you're doing a woman's job by making the soap. So they're just going to be <laughs> ripping you up. And I was like, well, 
So I don't know what the hell I'm walking into, to be honest with you, but it should be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that will be interesting. I t- Maine, we did a Ducks Unlimited television episode there a couple of years ago. It was really great. That's a beautiful part of the country. It really is. No, you know, the um, I've been to 42 states now, and the two sleeper states that nobody talks about that are my favorite is Idaho and Maine. Oh, you, fa- you brought up Idaho. I've got some contacts out there, and that's a that talk about great waterfowl hunting. Idaho is God at the Snake River. You've got yeah, a lot of a lot of you know big wetland areas. Ducks Unlimited has been really active out there in the West over the last decade, uh, really helping uh, develop those kind of projects. But uh, yeah, Idaho is a state. Oh man, beautiful place, incredible big game waterfowl upland. It's it's really got it all. Fishing. The Department of Fishing Game there is the most impressive that I've run into yet. They are so scientific-based. They are so focused on doing exactly what the consumer wants. They put out surveys every year and say, hey, these are our ideas. Which one would you like to fund? And they ask the people buying the hunting and fishing licenses, and that they do the project specifically based on that, all science-based. And I was seeing interactions between the Department of Natural Resources there and the fishermen, and it was amazing. And I was like, man, oh, man, I wish we could replicate that in every state. If we had them in every state, the United States would be so much better off. Brett High is uh, the biologist that we worked with. Wonderful human being. Wonderful human being. Passionate about his work. Man, that's that's fantastic. It's it's really great to know that a lot of, you know <clears throat> that uh, that that kind of you know scientific presence is out there. Because we you know here at DU we've got some man some of the smartest people I've ever met. Everywhere in these you know come in these halls, they they just they have such a passion and such knowledge about how to develop you know, wetland areas, how to help waterfowl really sustain and thrive. It's uh, those folks are just they fascinate me. You know, uh, they got more brain power than I do. I think. <laughs> We had a we had a video just go viral on TikTok, and I'd like to ask you. It's a bit controversial. Do you, can I ask you your opinion, or should I leave it off? It's up to you. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we have to, we'll yeah. cut it out. Okay, okay. So I've got a question for you then. And it, we had a video that just went viral here on TikTok, and uh, in Michigan, it is illegal to hunt sandhill cranes. So no sandhill crane right. hunting in Michigan. The thing is, we have an incredible population of cranes. And if you asked any human being here, what do you see more of, turkeys or cranes? Everybody would say cranes, no question asked. When you see birds in a field, it's probably cranes here. Like even right now, if I went out here and drove five miles, I would probably see 50 cranes. So we have a big population, but yet we can't hunt them. Now, what's interesting enough is the population's gotten so big that the government, the DNR is actually issuing kill tags to farmers to harvest them because of crop damage. So we have plenty of tags to give out crop damage tags and shoot the cranes for that reason. But it's illegal to eat them. So they make the farmers burn or bury them. And my argument is, can you imagine getting to heaven and looking God in the face and saying, yeah, I just, all those beautiful birds you gave us that tasted so great, I just burned them because I because this guy told me to. And that we I've been fighting this law for a while and, and sounding the alarm on it because what they should do is have license be sold like turkey tags where you get one and all of that money and funding could go in towards the conservation of the species as opposed to issuing kill tags and burning a renewable, gorgeous, incredible resource. And uh, I've been trying to sound the alarm on it any way that I can because I think it's, I think it's unbli- unbiblical. And there's no ethics behind those laws whatsoever. And man, I'm just thinking about that. 
because in my experience the sandhill crane is table fare among the waterfowl species is unmatched yeah it's 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 unparalleled so to think about the fact that they would require you to burn them oh man and you know my grandfather would be rolling over in his grave because he he taught me from a very very young age if you're going to harvest an animal it is your responsibility if you don't eat it yourself you need to make sure that it's used and i've always taken that to heart from from day one and i think it's a great conservation message if you know to, to utilize that resource because it, it's you know it, it's just you're being very disrespectful to to the game by doing that yeah and there's like a disconnect there right like where they're so adamant about not having a hunting season um and the the argument behind it is they look similar to uh, another bird that is endangered i get that's one of the biggest arguments i've heard towards it which i can understand but there's plenty of ducks that look like ducks you can't shoot you know i have how many of us have pulled up on a, um, uh, you know, the wrong bird and had to go? Oh no, 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 no! You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, it's all, it's all happened. Like, no, don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot. Is that what you think? You know? And uh, um, I, I just think it's important that we get the word out there about the Sandhill Crane. I'd like to see a season put in place where we sold licenses that raised funds to actually help the population grow. Um, and given the fact that we're in the flyway too, it would be helpful to Sandhill populations overall if we sold that license here. Agreed, agreed. The Sandhill is a fascinating bird. Uh, we just uh, we just had a DUTV episode come out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, our chief uh, fundraising uh, officer, he goes every year to the Lubbock, Texas area to hunt Sandhills. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great area to hunt them. But Texas has always embraced the hunting of Sandhill crane. You know, although you were talking about being confused with another species, at one point in time, I think it was below I-35 in the, south, in the Texas coastal region, you, crane season was never open because the fact they're whipping cranes around. That was the bird. I just <laughs> yeah, I could never cranes. remember if the word was and right. I, yeah. I've been yeah. up close to whipping cranes, and it's just, man, I don't see how you'd confuse them. You know, I mean, it's, nope. a, it's a much bigger white bird compared to a, a, you know, a smaller dusky gray bird that has a different call. So it's just, I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure how you really confuse that. We're also the only state without a dove season. So, I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, okay. we're not allowed to hunt doves. We're not allowed to hunt doves because they're a songbird. Oh, man. That's, uh, that's rough. Yeah. The number one harvested animal on the face of the earth. We're not allowed to hunt in Michigan, so. <laughs> Man, I, once again, I, I, got, I got some DU Nation stuff coming up in Texas, and we're going to talk about white-winged doves, you know, and we're going to hunt okay. white wings and, and and the fact that how the white wing populations in Texas have expanded over the years, and now there's special seasons that, uh, when I was a kid, you were, you were only able to hunt white wing in, in the valley and in Mexico because they, they, their range wasn't expanded beyond that. And so it was a very South Texas thing. And now it's, yeah, wow, white wing. You know, they, they've got six days of special white wing season in the South Zone that, uh, so you can, you know, really expand the harvest of it. And I think the, the numbers I've heard this year that in Texas, like there's, a, like, I think it's 11.7 million white wing this year. So they, they had a really great hatch this year. And morning doves, too. I think the morning doves are up like 40% over last year. Um, so it, uh, yeah, but man, I, I can't even, <laughs> dove hunting has been such a big part of my life. You know, it kind of kicks everything off that, man, I'd, yeah. I'd have to move out of Michigan, I think. I, you know, I just. <laughs> I love this state. I love the seasons. I love the adventure here i absolutely i'll never leave but I, i've got some things to fix up with the our our, our laws here we've got a, a a deer bait ban here which is incredibly ignorant um and the science is out that uh you know it doesn't make any sense the dnr actually came together and then got it and said hey the public is upset about this deer bait ban 
because uh, it does, you know, moving apples a hundred yards from your uh, from an apple tree close to your stand doesn't create chronic wasting disease. Um, that does that's not how it works. So once they realized it, they got it all the way up to the governor, and she's never hunted it a day in her life, so she vetoed it. Um, so now we can't, you know, it's it's the problem with Michigan is like um, some people don't like baiting, and that's okay. But in Michigan, a lot of people have 10 acres or five acres or 20 acres, and that's their piece of land they can hunt. They can't track all across the world the, you know, uh, the land here. So they do what they can to make their land as interesting or good to deer as they possibly can. And one of the things they do is deer, uh, they, they, they bait. And a lot of guys, you know, they get one weekend a year off or, you know, to go up deer hunting and they bait and they harvest their deer and they go home. But now we're seeing the harvest numbers plummet because of the no deer baiting because now they're staying on specific lands that people don't have access to. And that's just, it is just, so now the numbers are going up, but somehow that makes chronic wasting disease okay. You know, having a bunch more deer on the landscape, making out with each other 24 seven, that's not a problem. But moving some apples, you know, it's just, so it's just, it bothers me a little bit because we've got some laws to clean up here. And that's part of, that's why I like DU is because you guys are so science focused. And then all that science pushing happens and then that information is given to the hunters and the Department of Natural Resources. And you have great people in the Michigan DNR, like John Darlin, the people we work with in the uh, the DU video or manage the Harsons Island waterfowl area. They work with you guys. Thank God for the information that you guys give them so that they can make educated decisions. So because of Ducks Unlimited, I have no problems with how the, the waterfowl is managed here. I think it's managed very, very well. And we just need you guys to branch out and ha- uh, handle every other animal and then we'll be good to go. <laughs> well... We make a point that what we do is beneficial to really all, you know, other wildlife and, and people too. Uh, but I don't know, Cal. Uh, it, it may be it may be a stretch to get uh, to get the uh, <laughs> administration to really want to uh, move away from what you know in, in, into different things than the waterfowl. But anyway, man, this has been fantastic. I, I sure appreciate you coming on the uh, the DU podcast. And uh, we're, man, really looking forward to watching the show on the History Channel. It, it, it sounds it's really exciting. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I hope everyone will tune in every Saturday at 9 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard. Check your local listings. Uh, but every Saturday in September, there'll be two brand new episodes back to back. So either set your DVR, check it out on Hulu and everywhere else, you know, you can find History Channel. Excellent. Excellent. And once again, we thank you very much for being a, a strong po- partner with Ducks Unlimited and a partner in conservation. You know, it's, it's uh, we're, we're all in this together and we just got to keep on pushing it forward. Amen. All right, folks, once again, thanks for listening to the Ducks Unlimited podcast and supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.